MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, January 2nd, 2020. I'm your host, AG, and today we have an interview from the Muller She Wrote episode called Trump is a Russian Asset. And the interview is with the architect of the Magnitsky Act, Bill Browder. Uh, the interview originally aired January 13th, 2019, and we discussed the indictment at the time of Veselnitskaya. She's the Russian lawyer that was in the room in the famous June 2016 Trump Tower meeting with Don Jr., Manafort, and Goldstone, and other high-level Trump campaign officials. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so back in the mid to late 2000s, some bad hombres stole about $230 million in a Russian tax fraud scheme and then laundered that money through real estate transactions in New York using a Cyprus-based investment firm called Prevazon Holdings. Magnitsky, a tax fraud specialist, alleged that the theft was carried out by Russian officials, and Putin, a guy who we know gets rich stealing from the Russian people, targeted Magnitsky. So they arrested him in 2008. And they beat him and starved him and tortured him, didn't provide him health care while he was imprisoned, and he died in Russian custody. And, and then we get to Bill Browder. He's the CEO of Hermitage Capital, who, in response to Magnitsky's murder, lobbied Congress, U.S. Congress, to pass the Magnitsky Act to punish human rights violators. Obama signed it into law in 2012, and in response, Putin banned U.S. adoptions of Russian children. Putin also put together a group of anti-Magnitsky Act lobbyists, which included Veselnitskaya, and she pitched her tale to folks like Dana Rohrabacher, who just recently lost his bid uh, for Congress. And he even, she even brought her Magnitsky file to that June 2016 Trump Tower meeting. And she also worked for the team defending Prevazon Holdings, who, in a strange plot twist, hired a firm to dig up dirt on its enemies, which included Bill Browder. And that firm was Fusion GPS, and that's the same firm that Republicans and then Democrats hired to get oppo research on Trump. Also the same firm that hired Christopher Steele, who wrote the dossier. And that's why I think Republicans wouldn't stop asking about Prevazon Holdings and testimony from witnesses involved in this case, because they were trying to discredit that dossier. So this week, Veselnitskaya was indicted for obstructing justice in the civil forfeiture case for the money laundering scheme. Uh, and she's charged with coordinating a response with Kremlin officials to whitewash a document filed with the court about Prevazon Holdings, and she got caught. So joining us today to discuss the indictment of Veselnitskaya is the CEO of Hermitage Capital, the architect of the Global Magnitsky Act, and the author of Red Notice. Please welcome Bill Browder. Bill, thanks for joining us on Mueller, she wrote. Uh, great to be here. So first, I know it's hard to sum up, but is that the story in a nutshell? Did I miss any glaring, obvious things that should be brought to light? Well, I'm actually working on my next book, um, and um, and it's going to be about 400 pages to discuss that. So for you to be able to do that in three minutes is a big accomplishment. <laughs> Thank you. It was really difficult. <laughs> I remember watching your testimony in July of 2017 and, and listening to the chilling story of, of the capture and murder of Magnitsky. So... Um, yeah, it was tough to sum up there, but I did want to get your top line reaction this week on the indictment of Veselnitskaya. Well, um, I, I was delighted to see it. Um, uh, Natalia Veselnitskaya um, is, is a person who pushed every boundary and pushed beyond what was legal in many places in order to do the Kremlin's bidding. And, um, and we saw her um, uh, uh, cheating 
in the U.S. Um, uh, case in which the U.S. Department of Justice was prosecuting her client, uh, Preverzone, and she was cheating. And, and, and this is where it gets interesting, is that um, uh, in, in order for the U.S. to prosecute Preverzone, they wanted to get documents um, through a, what's called a mutual legal assistance request from the Russian government. And so the United States government asked the Russian government for documents to prove the case. And what happened then was that Natalia Veselnitskaya effectively goes into the office of the Russian government, where, where she's an agent of the Russian government, and instead of the Russian government replying to the Department of Justice, Natalia Veselnitskaya replies to the Department of Justice, and she says, we're not going to give you those documents. Um, and, and then she makes up a fake story about how me and Sergei were the ones who did the crime that her client was accused of. And what makes the story so fascinating is that the U.S. Department of Justice got hold of her emails and got hold of documents, of Word documents, with properties in track changes that show that she was the one editing the documents, replying from the Russian government to the U.S. government. And so she got caught red-handed. And it's, it's, it's very satisfying to watch um, her get indicted and, uh, and to watch her squirm and, and, uh, and make all these crazy comments after being indicted by the U.S. government. Yeah, exactly. And it does actually give us a, a proof that she is connected to the Kremlin pretty strongly. Uh, and I also wanted to ask you, do you know if any of the Prevazon real estate deals in New York were in any way connected to Trump or anyone in his family like Kushner? Well, it, it, there's a sort of um, there's sort of connected in a very obtuse way. Um, the 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 only way I can say they're connected is that Preferzone bought a bunch of properties from a company called AFI. AFI is a company owned by Lev Levayev, and Lev Levayev and AFI were involved with Jared Kushner in the New York Times building transaction um, a couple of years earlier. But I, I think that that's a pretty tenuous connection, if any at all. Yeah, definitely a kind of a third or fourth, you know, times removed from that. But uh, I was just interested because I, c I wasn't able to find a lot of information on it. Um, something else interesting is that Trump fired Preet Bharara, who was handling this case or overseeing it two days, I think, before the Prevazon case went to trial. And then shortly after that, uh, the case was settled. Um, why do you suppose do you think did you find any odd anything odd about that? Um, I, I didn't. Um, uh, I think the case settled mainly because the um, uh, uh, the, the U.S. government were, were able to get three times the amount of money that they had attracted to New York in a settlement. So they, had, they were able to track two million dollars of dirty Russian money coming into the United States and Preverzone settled for six. And, and I guess um, they had originally frozen 14. And so their idea was, why not take just six instead of risking uh, a jury trial for the 14 and then possibly end up having to pay the other side's fees if the jury trial goes the wrong way. Okay, that makes sense. And um, to your point about when, you know, Veselnitskaya was caught red-handed coordinating uh, with Russia on this response to the court, that happened back, I think, in 2015. Why do you suppose they waited until this past December to indict her? Well, it, so so they didn't know about it until last year. All this information came out in an NBC News report about a year ago. And um, uh, after the NBC News report, I would imagine that the, I, I was gobsmacked when I watched this show where, where they actually had the documents. NBC News had the documents. And I'm sure that the um, people at the U.S. Justice Department had the same reaction that I did. 
And um, it, 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 I would say it's actually sort of lightning speed based on my own observation of how quickly cases get put together at the U.S. Justice Department. A year from from uh, a recognition of a crime to an indictment is a, is a pretty fast moving thing. And so I don't, I don't think there's anything unusual about that. OK, that's good to know. I, I you know, that was one of the big questions that a lot of our listeners had is why it took so long. But that seems to be along the timeline tracks of how the Justice Department operates. This portion of The Daily Beans is brought to you by Root Insurance. I am a good driver. Nay, I am a great driver. I do not get road rage, mostly because I listen to classical music when I drive, but I do flip the bird like I'm conducting a symphony. Uh, But what does get me mad, actually, is overpaying for car insurance. And now I'm done with that because I have found the ideal inexpensive insurance company for me. It's called Root Insurance. Instead of basing your car insurance rate on credit score, age, gender, or zip code, Root Insurance bases it primarily on how you drive. By taking bad drivers out of the equation, Root saved its good drivers up to 52% in 2019. There's a reason why Root has been featured in Forbes, TechCrunch, Wired, The Washington Post, and Fortune magazine. In 2019, Root was the fastest-growing direct insurance company in the United States, and they're the world's first mobile-first car insurance company. Their insurance card is available right from your phone, and if you get into an accident, you can file a claim directly in the app. It's so easy. Car insurance made easy. Who'd have thunk? With rates based on how you drive, not who you are. I love it. And all you have to do is download the Root Insurance app, drive normally for a few weeks during the Root test drive, and see how much you can save. Don't wait and give Root a try. Head to your app store and download the Root Insurance app. Sign up in less than a minute to start your test drive today. That's Root, R-O-O-T, again. Download the Root app today or visit joinroot.com to learn more and see how much you could save. Root reserves the right to refuse to quote any individual premium rate for the insurance advertised herein. Savings based on national reviews reported by actual customers. Form 1 not available in all states. This product is not available in California. How do you think the Trump Tower meeting with Veselnitskaya figures into this story? And um, I mean, what do you make of Manafort's notes during that meeting, which included your name uh, and something that said value in Cyprus as inter, among other things? What do you make of all that? Well, so so. Uh, it, it, a lot of the a lot of the the, the um, press reported that Veselnitskaya was being indicted on a separate matter than the Trump Tower meeting, and that's just not true. Natalia Veselnitskaya had one basic goal, or sort of two two goals uh, under one heading, which was um, to discredit me and discredit Sergei Magnitsky on behalf of Vladimir Putin to have the Magnitsky Act repealed. That was her main. That's what she was tasked with in the United States. And she was operating on a very aggressive uh, plan to do that. And um, her lying in, um, uh, in this court case and this obstruction of justice was part of that. And going to the Trump Tower meeting, a meeting with Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort with a request from Putin that if, if Donald Trump gets elected, um, would he please repeal the Magnitsky Act as all part and parcel of the same thing. Okay, so it's it's about you know lifting sanctions. Yes. Yeah, so just so you understand the context, Vladimir Putin um, is one of the richest men in the world. He became rich by killing people, stealing assets, imprisoning people, etc. Like he did with Sergei Magnitsky. Um, he's gotten so rich, he keeps all that money offshore. And the Magnitsky Act says that people who commit human rights abuses can have their money offshore frozen. And so Vladimir Putin feels very personal about this. And Vladimir Putin has a lot of money that can be frozen offshore. And um, and so after the Magnitsky Act passed in 2012, Vladimir Putin issued a 
a foreign policy white paper, a sort of strategy paper about his foreign policy for the world. And he said that repealing the Magnitsky Act was his single largest foreign policy priority with the United States. And so this is something which he feels very, very personal about. He really wants to achieve, and he's ready to go to great lengths with all sorts of different operations to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the things that I was wondering about that um, I had I had read was that, uh, and I wanted to ask you, does the Magnitsky Act still allow the president of the United States to veto individuals on the OFAC sanctions list? Well, so the, the way the Magnitsky Act works is that the State Department and the Treasury Department are tasked with putting together the list of people to be sanctioned. And um, every year um, in December, uh, the Magnitsky Act should be updated to add new people. Um, strangely, this year it didn't happen. Not so strangely, the reason it didn't happen is that everybody working in the sanctions team is on uh, furlough um, uh, because of the government shutdown. But because, because this, is a, this is an executive decision, the president can uh, block people from, that are being proposed by the State Department or the Treasury Department. Um, uh, the president, in theory, can take people off the list if, if, if he wants to. And, um, and he has pretty much unlimited latitude. The only thing the president can't do is repeal the Magnitsky Act. The Magnitsky Act was passed as an act of Congress. And so for the law to disappear, it would require an act of Congress to repeal it. <clears throat> I see. And um, that kind of ties into this week uh, when the secretary of Trump's Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, gave a closed door briefing to Congress about lifting sanctions on Oleg Deripaska. Uh, can you tell us how the Magnitsky Act will play a role maybe in helping block that lifting of sanctions? Well, so so the, 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 uh, Oleg Deripaska was sanctioned under the CATSA law, which was the uh, election hacking law, not the Magnitsky Act, but it, it uses the same exact treasury tools to sanction people. And it's an extremely, extremely powerful tool because it, by going after the richest people in uh, the richest Russians, um, by putting them on the sanctions list, it's it's absolutely devastating. Now, um, this, this whole Deripaska situation is very, very... Um, uh, unpleasant for me to watch because Oleg Deripaska, for any observer of Russia, we all know that he's effectively uh, an alter ego of Putin. He, he's a guy who's like a private sector arm of the Putin regime. He does stuff in the private sector that, you know, for Putin that Putin couldn't do because he's president. And so by sanctioning Deripaska, it was really a, a sort of like a neutron bomb going off over Moscow. And the fact that they're now discussing lifting part of the sanctions against Deripaska is a very, very ugly development. And all the justifications that they're using for why they're lifting sanctions don't make any sense to me. Yeah, us, us, yeah, we, they don't make sense to us either. Um, and uh, it just seems like another way that just seems like one of the many ways they're trying to circumvent uh, these sanctions. Well, um, I mean, the, 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 just just in case people don't know the arguments that they're making, they're basically saying that Oleg Deripaska owns an aluminum company, uh, a um, uh, energy company, and and some other bits and pieces. And the, the Treasury Mnuchin is saying, you know, we we mean to sanction him, but we don't want to destroy the livelihoods of people working in these companies. 
And therefore, what they're saying is that if he reduces his ownership stake from 70% to 45%, then that will make the Treasury comfortable that he doesn't control the companies anymore. But that's just nonsense. Anybody who spent more than five minutes on Wall Street or, or even knows somebody on Wall Street knows that 40, owning 45% of a company means you control the company. And so the idea that, that somehow he doesn't control it if you bring him down below 50% is just a weak sort of um, uh, a weak excuse to basically give him a huge gift. Right. And, that, and didn't I read that VTB was actually buying a lot of these shares? Of course. And so VTB is going to buy shares and there's going to be a, a guy named Lord Barker, a British guy who's been who's like his personal concierge, um, who's going to be the trustee and all is going to be, you know, it's all sort of smoke and mirrors. And the, and the reality is that they're all just snickering in the background, thinking that they legged us over one more time. Well, I hope Congress um, presses this issue uh, because it's it's disturbing to me that they're even thinking about lifting sanctions on, on him or Rusal or any of his companies. But uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you about, you've spent the greater part of your time on activities in support of the Magnitsky Act, which pretty much passed the Senate unanimously. I think there were two holdouts. Famous, A famous holdout was Bernie Sanders, and I was wondering if you've ever had occasion to speak with him about that vote, and do you know why he opposed it? Uh, I do not know. And, and I, I, you know, during the previous election, when, when um, some of my left-wing friends were uh, feeling the burn, I would, I would remind them that I say, this is a guy who voted against the Magnitsky Act. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't... Uh, I don't know why he did that, but I, I hold it against him. I mean, it was a 98 to uh, uh, to two vote. Yeah, I've, I've heard both sides of that story. And some folks say that he was uh, he voted no because it didn't go far enough. Uh, it gave the executive too much power. But I, I haven't been able to confirm that with anybody. That doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> All right. Before I let you go, can you tell us about your book, Red Notice? So uh, my book, Red Notice, uh, is a an account of, of how I ended up in Russia, um, how I started my business in Russia, how for a while it was a, a, an amazing and successful business, and then I encountered the most horrible corruption anyone could ever imagine, um, and the Russians were stealing everything. I tried to fight the stealing, and that led to me being expelled from the country, my company seized, my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, arrested, tortured, and murdered, and then the last third of the book is my fight for justice, which culminates in the passage of the Magnitsky Act, which is the thing that that Putin hates more than anything. Um, it's a uh, uh, it's a it's a book which um, uh, uh, you, you'll you'll learn a lot about Russia, but you don't have to care about Russia to read it because uh, it it it's just a fascinating and terrifying story all the way through. Absolutely. It is terrifying. And I encourage everybody to pick up that book, Red Notice. I also encourage you to watch Bill Browder's testimony to Congress from 2017 and listen to episode two of Mueller, She Wrote. It's all about the Magnitsky Act and and Bill Browder's testimony. Um, Everyone's CEO of Hermitage Capital and author of Red Notice, Bill Browder. Bill, thanks for joining us on Mueller, She Wrote. Thank you. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazal and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>